Welcome to Punditocracy, Lawrence.com's politics and culture podcast. I'm Gavin, and can you smell that? Ah, yes. This installment of Punditocracy has that new media smell. It must be the rich Corinthian leather. In this episode, we preview the upcoming panel, Blog to the Chief, the Impact of Political Blogs on the 2008 Election, part of the Dole Institute of Politics Presidential Lecture Series to be held on February 13th. I speak with panelist Joan McCarter, the editor and blogger at DailyCoast.com, known as McJoan, and Jerome Armstrong, founder of MyDD.com and co-author of Crashing the Gate, as well as with panel moderator David Perlmutter, professor of journalism at KU and author of the soon-to-be-released Blog Wars. Sit back and enjoy our podcast tour through the net roots of the blogosphere on this crazy series of tubes we call the Internets. Joan McCarter, editor and blogger at DailyCoast.com. Welcome to Lawrence.com, and thank you for some of your time. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Blogging has become more and more, at least in the past few years, mainstream. It's no longer the political equivalent of playing the World of Warcraft online. In fact, you can even make a living at it. How does one become a full-time blogger? How did you wind up on the Daily Coast? I started posting at Daily Coast uh, three years ago. It's hard to imagine (laughs) (laughs) that it's been both that long and that short of a time. Um, As a regular commenter, again, like so many people who went to blogging, frustrated over the Iraq War, frustrated that voices against the war weren't being heard, and and looking for people that I could talk to about it. that's how most of us got started blogging, I think. Frustration with the the traditional media, with the administration, and with not being heard. So I started writing at Daily Coast back in February of 2004, and um, was one of the voices that people enjoyed hearing. So eventually I, I became a front-page poster there. Um, it always works that the community nominates, and out of the nominations every year that the community has for front-page posters, Marcos then chooses among them. And I was lucky enough to be one of those people in 2006. Yeah. So you sort of rose up from the ranks of uh, the readership. The ranks, which is probably <laughs> the hallmark of blogging. It's entirely a bottom-up process, one of the things that I like most about it. How big is Daily Coast? Like, How many readers do you have a day? We have anywhere between three-quarters of a million and a million readers a day. Um, if, if it's a slow news day, maybe around half a million. <laughs> we have some 120,000 registered users. Of those, probably 7,000 are regularly active, showing up on at least a semi-weekly basis to write, to comment, to read other things and recommend them. So, and that, it's a big community. Yeah, yeah, and it almost spikes exponentially around election time and other big events in national politics. It most certainly does. Mm. Um, Supreme Court justice confirmation hearings, mm-hmm. the elections, uh, things like that, where where we particularly become active. 
and the uh, servers keep crashing. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> on election night, we had a, an interesting game going with with our tech people trying to shift the load between servers, <laughs> stripping down every every extraneous portion of, of the site in order to just keep the news up. It's like playing Russian roulette. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not on the technical side of it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that'd be a chore. But uh, back more to the, uh, the the content side of it. Do you see yourself and the Netroots at large more as watchdogs for the traditional media or as maybe an alternative to the traditional media? We're actually a little of both. Mm-hmm. And um, the watchdog role, I think, is particularly important. The fifth estate has has fallen down on his job a little bit in the last six years, particularly seven years, getting us into Iraq. I think that a lot in the media now are are rethinking how they approached the run-up to the Iraq war, the path that they gave this president in not questioning the justifications for war, the claims made that we all now know, of course, weren't true. Um, and the blogs helped push that. We helped question that. And and many of them hate us <laughs> because <laughs> we do provide that check, but it does help change the debate. Um, for instance, I think the Lamont race in Connecticut, that primary against Joe Lieberman, really helped change the debate in the traditional media and helped make Iraq as much of an issue for the traditional media in this election as it was for the blogs. And you mentioned the Lamont primary victory. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the, the midterms in general, how, how instrumental do you think the, the blogosphere was in shaping the outcome of the 2006 midterms? I think we were pretty instrumental, um, not just by ourselves, but again, making Iraq as big an issue as it was, primarily with the Lieberman race. Um, And the Tester and Allen uh, Webb, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) You can say Makaka. It's all right. (laughs) But but the Webb victory and the Tester victory, particularly, they were candidates that the Netroot seized upon very, very early, promoted as much as we could, helped raise money for, um, and really helped raise the profile of these candidates, and particularly with the Webb-Allen race, having having the questions of Allen's racism mm. yeah. <laughs> out there so blatantly in the video that we got, and being able to show that video regularly, and being able to research, we ha- we had lots of people in the community who who lived in Virginia telling their stories, researching. Um, it really made Alan's racism an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think rose it, rose it to a level that the traditional media noticed it and started talking about it, and I think it made a tremendous difference in that race. Mm-hmm. And um. John Tester essentially won his primary with a lot of help from the networks. He, he faced a very tough, much more traditional Democratic sort of DLC-type opponent in the primary in Montana, John Morrison, mm-hmm. and concerted help in the primaries for Tester, including raising a lot of money, I think helped him win that primary. 
and based on the uh, the successes you experienced in 2006 by promoting certain candidates in primaries and raising money for them that ended up winning and also just your raw readership numbers both not just daily coast but the um, sort of left-leaning progressive mm-hmm. blogs in general why do you think that your particular sphere, your particular hemisphere of the blogosphere is seemingly more successful than the right-leaning conservative blogs? I think it's because we're much more inclusive. Again, it's the bottom-up approach. This is people. This is grassroots activists, and we're all involved in the conversation. There, You really don't have to have highfalutin political credentials to be able to comment or write or front-page posts on a left-leaning blog. Um, I actually do have some political background. I've been in politics most of my life, but um, others posting on the front page haven't. They, they came to this fairly recently and, and rose to prominence just because they could provide a coherent sort of regular person's view of politics. Mm-hmm. On, on the right side, um, you tend to have more sort of, more, I hate to use the term, but more apparatchiks <laughs> who've been in the party, who've, who've worked as staff. They're, they tend to be the people who end up blogging on the right, and there aren't as many community blogs mm-hmm. on the right. There's Red State, Little Green Footballs, um, Free Press that allow comments that some of the, many of the more prominent right-wing blogs don't even allow comments. It doesn't allow the same kind of free-flow community, everybody get in and talk about it atmosphere that we do on the left. Mm -hmm. Do you see Howard Dean's campaign in 2003 and 2004 as the beginning of the Netroots movement? In part, it certainly energized us, Mm -hmm. but... um, if you were on Daily Coast in 2003-2004, we had the Clarkistas, they called themselves. Yeah. <laughs> we had Edwards people. We had even a couple of Gephardt people. We had Kerry people even that early on. The Dean movement helped, in some ways, kick it off mm-hmm. by pulling people in with his We Have the Power message. But it spread out far beyond Dean supporters and far beyond what Howard Dean was doing. It got everybody involved. <laughs> Did you count yourself among the Deanie boppers? Um, I was a guarded Deaniac. <laughs> I, I loved his honesty. I loved that somebody was standing up with a megaphone and saying what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um. Did I think that he was going to be the nominee? I had my doubts. <laughs> Which were borne out. How do you, since the uh, the Dean campaign and well, in the uh, 2004 elections, how has the liberal blogosphere evolved since then? And how are you now mobilizing for the 2008 presidential elections? We're still evolving. It's really a moving target because technology changes so fast and how candidates respond to the technology is changing. Um, I think in a few short years, and this is very encouraging, we've moved beyond the idea that the blogs are an ATM. Right. That that was a real attitude that we saw at the beginning um, among 
sitting members of Congress, uh, sitting representatives, and and candidates that they saw what kind of money Howard Dean could yeah. raise and thought, all right, here's an untapped source. Let's just go get them. <laughs> That's really changed to where they see we want dialogue. We don't want to be talked at. We want to be talked with. We want to help shape the message. And some of us are pretty savvy in doing that. Um, conversations that we have with representatives like Brad Miller, he's, he's one of our favorites from North Carolina. He shows up on pretty much a weekly basis at the blog just to talk with us, <laughs> um, to find out what's important to us, what we're thinking about, and how shifts in the public mood are happening. Um, and I think more and more candidates are recognizing that it's a great force for tapping into what the public is thinking. We still have a few that essentially come on and give us their press release and <laughs> disappear. Um, that's becoming less and less common uh, because, frankly, there's open hostility toward that kind of attitude mm-hmm. because we expect more. <laughs> We've gotten more from some candidates, and, and that has led us to expect more. So we're a hard group to win over. Mm-hmm. We give our support when when it's proven that we should give our support. And I think more and more of the candidates are realizing that. Do you see yourself at a point now where you can sort of flex your muscle and throw around your influence a little bit more? Mm, I don't like the aggressive terminology there, <laughs> but I, I suppose that's sort of true. Um, I like to say we're, we're wielding influence. <laughs> All right. In some more and in more some diplomatic. Yes. <laughs> Where do the Democratic candidates for the nomination in 08 stand right now in their online presence? Like, who would who would you consider to be the front runner in the sort of unofficial online primary right now? Right now, it's John Edwards. Mm. I think he's been paying attention the longest. I he's got the best website. He and I think this can be largely attributed to Elizabeth Edwards too. Mm. She's been on the blog for years and years. We don't know who she is. <laughs> she's never told us who she posts as. And now she's decided she can only post as Elizabeth Edwards. Oh. Um, but there's an example of somebody who really gets it. Mm-hmm. And I think Edwards gets, gets it as well. I think she beat it into him. <laughs> um, his website is very good. He's very good about soliciting ideas, about engaging, and about bringing us in. Obama has the potential to do that. I don't think that he's quite reached it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think despite Peter Dow's working with Hillary Clinton, and Peter is, is one of my favorites. He's an excellent blogger, and he's a wonderful man to work with. I'm not sure that the Clinton campaign has made it past a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of wariness about um the chaos that is either at Daily Coast or at Atrios. Right. Uh, it, 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 it's kind of messy sometimes, <laughs> but democracy. And uh, speaking of Hillary Clinton, is, is she as loathed amongst the progressive bloggers as I sense her to be? She seems to have a lot of animosity directed towards her. There is 
certainly an element of that. Um, many of us think she's she's an excellent senator. Mm-hmm. She's very smart. She's very capable, and want to see her succeed, but see that she's got just some major barriers. One is her vote for the Iraq War resolution, and her seeming unwillingness to to recognize or to say that that vote may have been a mistake. Mm-hmm. She needs to have a much more clear Iraq policy. For many on the blogs, Iraq is sort of the bottom line. Um, and because we approached this from the very beginning with a distrust of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, and, and they've approached us with varying degrees of hostility. And she's a DLC candidate. And she's a DLC candidate. So that's definitely an area that, that we've got to work on. That's something, a, a chasm that she has to figure out how to breach. So you haven't closed the door on Hillary yet, but she has a lot no. of work to do. No. Bottom line, we support at least a Daily Coast. Not a, I can't speak for every blog. Our Democratic nominee is our Democratic nominee, mm-hmm. and we will do everything we can to support him or her. And do you think that a candidate in the Democratic primaries can win the nomination without the support of the Netroots? That's a very good question. I don't know yet. I honestly don't know yet. Mm. Um, part of that's the primary system. Because it seems Iowa it, is a strange place. <laughs> it's a very odd place. <laughs> and, and you really never know what's going to come out of Iowa. <laughs> so... We can do a lot to help certain candidates gain prominence. We can help them raise funds. We can help them shape their message. When it gets down to to the actual primary system and what those folks decide to do when they get into their caucuses, <laughs> it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> to be determined. To be determined. Yeah. And finally, you will be in Kansas for the Blog to the Chief panel on February 13th. Along Indeed. With, it's going to be my first visit to Kansas. And uh, we very much look forward to your visit. And as sort of a Kansas-themed question in presidential politics, does Sam Brownback frighten you? As a presidential contender? In general. In general? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I also grew up in Idaho politics. So. Ah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have a whole different spectrum for what extreme means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could see Sam Brown back in Idaho, definitely. So I'll get your take on the Republican side of the presidential primaries. How do you see those shaking out at this point? It's really interesting. I. I sometimes peek over at Red State and some of the Republican blogs to see what we're talking about. Right now, I see an overwhelming lack of enthusiasm mm. among those Republicans for anybody on the slate. Really? It's very interesting to me. Um, I could see a brownback really coming in and shaking things up and making a big difference. As a social conservative think... anti-war candidate? Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting mix. Um, I think there's still a lot of hostility towards John McCain among the social conservatives and among those who were opposed to Iraq, and it's an increasing number. Um, it's hard to imagine what he's doing with his escalation stance. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see that really rocketing him to the top of the list. <laughs> um, stranger things have happened. It's true. Let's see. 
Giuliani? I don't see having much support outside of the Northeast. I really don't see him able to run a national campaign. Mm-hmm. And he's not very well liked among those who know him. I, I, he's, he's sort of just not the nicest of people. And I think that will <laughs> he's not good people. He's not in, good in people. In the stress <laughs> of a primary campaign, we'll see more of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see who gets bitchier as the primary season wears on, McCain That's or Giuliani. Because yeah. yep. <laughs> <laughs> McCain's got a notoriously short fuse. We'll see how short Giuliani's is. Yeah. And what about the sort of wild card is Chuck Hagel. What what do you think would happen if he entered the race? He could be 2000s McCain. Mm-hmm. I think that he, because of his strong opposition on Iraq to this president, I think that he could make a lot of independents take a second look. Mm. Um, so, you know, the job for the left, of course, would be defining just how conservative he is on social issues. And I don't know. I, I get the sense from Hegel that he's set up. I'm not. I'm not certain that Hegel really does want to take on another race in a race of this dimension. Hmm. But what do I know? <laughs> not, not your candidates. Not my candidate. No. <laughs> but it's fun to watch from afar. Joan McCarter, thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com, and we look forward to seeing you on the panel at the Blog to the Chief conference on February 13th. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Jerome Armstrong, founder of MyDD and co-author of Crashing the Gates. Thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. What, Thank you. Well, first of all, you are attending the uh, Democratic National Committee's winter meeting in Washington, D.C., a sort of cattle call for the herd of 2008 Democratic presidential hopefuls. Who have you seen thus far, and who has impressed you, if anyone? Well, it was, it was, it was uh, pretty unique because Howard Dean actually gave the, uh, you know, he's the DNC chair now, and he gave the introduction, and it was four years ago that he came to, uh, to D.C. and gave the what I want to know speech that, that stood up to Democrats in D.C. that weren't standing up to Bush and really began the, um, began his campaign in that setting. It was a little bit more of a subdued response today from the candidates that uh, spoke, and there were about six of them, and there'll be uh, a handful more tomorrow. In terms of the um, like the, the overall, uh, you know, the, each candidate's um, speech and Run down the 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 hit list. <laughs> okay, sure. So Chris Dodd went first, and um, I don't think a lot of people know Chris Dodd. He's he's been a senator for a long, long time from from Connecticut, but um, you know I didn't even know what his position, what his vote was on the Iraq War um, before he was announced as a candidate, and, <laughs> and he's sort of been in the um, under the shadow of Joe Lieberman, the more prominent senator from Connecticut. But he went first, and he gave a speech that was um, pretty partisan. Um, scattered a little bit, but he had a group of supporters there that held um, pretty strong support in terms of uh, signs. And um, he basically is, has an up and out uh, strategy of either he's going to get attention really quick, and he's asking people to give him a chance and to listen listen um, to what he has to say, or he's going to go nowhere. So we'll see what we'll see where that where that goes. I don't think he has a lot of breathing space right now, but you never know; things can change. The um, the next speech was from uh, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave a, a speech that was, um, he took on basically a, a, a more of a lofty position of trying to frame the 
the contest, uh, looking out over the broad view and, and saying, you know, this was a this was a battle against cynicism and getting people involved and, and being able to um, look at the process and, as, as from the from the viewpoint of what we're trying to achieve in the broader perspective. So it wasn't very much of a, a partisan rabble rousing speech, but it was much more designed for um, something. I, I think it was sort of a continuance of the the DNC speech that he gave in 2004, which he had such a great reception for. But at this venue, he had he had a great reception, but he he wasn't overwhelming like um, some people may have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the next one was John Edwards, and John Edwards um, has been a candidate. You know, he was a candidate in, in the last cycle, and in, in this cycle, he's basically just been continuing on the campaign trail ever since. He was the vice presidential nominee, and then after. Uh, John Kerry, and he lost. He, he continued campaigning for president pretty much in Iowa. He's maintained his strength. And he came, and I haven't really seen him speak in um, a couple of years, and I thought he's really, really improved in terms of his speaking ability. But um, he had, a, he had a, a strong group of supporters there. They were very well organized, um, very vocal, and uh, his, his message is very responsive with the, the main issues that are of liberal Democrats, many of whom you know are the predominant voters in the Democratic primary and the caucuses, and so he's very he's very targeted on appealing to people that are um, Democrats because of an issue of one or another, and making sure that he's aligned with that. And so he went through a whole litany list list of those those sort of issues and touched on those. Uh, the next speech, I'm trying to remember here, after John Edwards. Hillary? Wasn't Hillary? Was oh yeah, it was Dennis Kucinich. Kucinich, yeah. Uh, well, no, no wonder I almost forgot. <laughs> You'd be forgiven. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we're all sitting there wondering why is this guy running again exactly? <laughs> Did he uh, answer that question at no, all today? He just he, he. It seems to me that uh, he exists in an alternate reality where he, he he projects himself as what he would do as president when everybody knows, and he should know as well that there's no chance that he could be a nominated president. Right. And, you know, I, I'm all for giving people a chance, but I don't really understand why he's running. Again, so. <laughs> people didn't really, you know, pay much attention to what he had to say, and he kind of just lulled the crowd to sleep, which probably worked towards the next person vanished, because that was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> if you have an opening act, you want to make sure that it doesn't eclipse you, so I guess yeah. Hillary lucked out in the draw. Time, the standards are pretty low. What comes next? <laughs> and Hillary came in, and, uh, you know, her first thing she said was, you know, I'm in it to win it. I'm running for president. Mm-hmm. And I think she was probably the one candidate today, um, outside of John Edwards, who appealed more on the issues, but she was the one candidate today who came um, knowing exactly what people expected, mm-hmm. that this was a presidential counter-call, and they wanted to hear people say that they were running for president and what they were going to do or why they were running for president and be that their central theme. That's That would be opposed to Barack Obama, who really didn't talk much at all about why he would run for president or that he was running for president. You know, he's still in this exploratory stage. But she really just, you know, laid it on the line, and, and I thought she came across as someone that was a little bit more more de- dynamic than she usually has hmm. been. And uh, she doesn't really have a lot of support online um, to date, but it seems that whenever she is, speaks in crowds, at least, you know, at, at uh, Democratic gatherings or whatnot, she does get a very positive reception. But if you look online, her her um, the votes for her and the polls that are taken and whatnot are very low numbers for her. Mm. I don't. I wonder if that will change over time. There is a certain amount of inevitability that she she tries to exude with her campaign. They did a very good job of uh, handing out campaign signs. I mentioned 
that Dodd got about 50 signs. Um, Edwards was probably about 75 to 100, and they were scattered mostly into, into a couple key blocks. But Hillary Clinton's campaign, and Barack Obama's didn't have any. They were not organized to do that. But Hillary Clinton's campaign had signs scattered throughout the hall, uh, probably numbering 150 to 200 of them. Hmm. And it just shows that they have, you know, the resources and the knowledge to, you know, prepare for the expectations of these types of organizational Measures that things you know, like the press and the bloggers, are going to look for the little things. Yeah, it is the little things, and you know, in, in the bigger picture, they don't tend to matter that much. But this is, you know, the the the, the year before the actual election is is as much of a process story as anything, and it does contribute to uh, a factor such as how much a campaign is able to fundraise and whatnot. I mean, the Dean campaign, no doubt, won the process story wars in two thousand three. And it contributed to us being able to fundraise more than any other candidate. We weren't able to close the deal. Mm-hmm. So what that says is that that's not the end all, but it does that, that, it does count a lot right now. And speaking of Dean and one of his co-Democrats, one of his uh, fellow potential nominees from '04 made an appearance today, Wesley Clark. How did he go over? Yeah, that's who I miss, actually, was Wesley Clark. Wesley Clark came in, and um, there's a lot of buzz right now of whether or not Wesley Clark is actually going to run. And... Um, Dean actually said at the beginning that, you know, only candidates were invited to this, speak at this. And I think he caught himself realizing, oh, wait, Wesley Clark isn't a candidate. And so he adjusted and said, are those who are eminently candidates? <laughs> so he sort of tipped off that, you know, probably Wesley Clark, uh, you know, agreed that he was going to be a candidate to be able to come and speak at this engagement. He was, he, he, he brought about a very um, serious uh, demeanor to his speech, um, Remember, he got into the race in September 2003, so it was much beyond when the DNC convention had happened before. Mm-hmm. And his his topic was all about the Iraq War, and and uh, um, you know he, he comes across as someone that really exudes leadership in a time of uh, crisis or anxiety, which you know I think many Americans would be able to respond to. But he did not really um, talk much about uh, running for president at all. Some people had thought maybe he would announce. In his speech, but it wasn't in that direction at all. He was um, Wesley Clark, and a lot of the other candidates too. I think uh, stuck around to uh, meet some of the bloggers. Um, I know I got an email from uh, someone in Clark's campaign about meeting him. I already left to come back over to Alexandria. John Edwards was uh, probably, I think, the only candidate who, right after his speech, uh, made an effort to go out into the um, to uh, shake hands with a lot of the crowd and whatnot. Um, but. There are three other candidates, I think, speaking, no, four other candidates as well, speaking tomorrow. Uh, it'll be um, Bill Richardson, from the governor from New Mexico, Tom Bilshack, governor from Iowa, uh, Senator Biden, mm-hmm. and um, former Senator Mike Gravel. Have you heard of him? <laughs> I've heard the name, honestly. What is, what is the rationale for his candidacy? Does he have one? We'll find out, but at least he's only, this is only his first time in, like, his <laughs> I don't know exactly what he's, uh, um, his positions are on, on most things, but I do know that from what I've learned is that he is uh, very opposed to the Iraq War, and um, but has some, and I think he's actually been a fairly active candidate. I know he's went out to Iowa and did a speech there before some Democrats, um, and and you know he is a former senator, so I think you have to take him seriously, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but tomorrow could mostly I think be considered the uh, the second tier if you if you're being yeah, generous. Yeah, well, actually, I would I would view him as the third tier. Even I mean that's <laughs> the interesting thing about tomorrow is that you know the first tier candidates are Edwards, um, Clinton, 
and Obama, and, the, and you're really looking at, well, who can break out into that from the second tier. And, and, and among the second tier candidates, this Dodd you have there, um, Clark, who is strong on the online, but not necessarily offline yet, uh, Richardson and Vilshack. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not any of those candidates gain traction. Who exactly is in attendance at this, this winter meeting? Who were the candidates speaking to in, in the hall immediately? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wide mix. You have a, a group within D.C. who basically are political you know, people that live in or around D.C. This would be people like myself, actually, that are involved in politics on one level and the other. Maybe they work with it in the campaigns or staffers or whatnot. They're, they're able to attend these things as guests. Um, you have the actual DNC members and, and you know, the, their staff that come along. Um, to these things, and they number, you know, a few, uh, into a few hundred, three, four hundred people that attend these meetings uh, twice a year. And then um, a, a large contingent of uh, college Democrats come to these, these meetings as well to, um, to use it as their annual gathering or biannual gathering space. And then the candidates themselves try to round up. I know I got emails from um, Hillary's campaign, Obama's campaign, and Edwards' campaign about this because I had signed up on their website and I had put in my zip code, so each one of them knew that I lived in this area, and they notified me at the, at the time and the place when Hillary was speaking, hmm. or, or the other candidates. So that, that was the makeup of the crowd in attendance, but the bloggers were also there, and do you the think... bloggers and press are there, too, and, and you know, so it's... And was, it, was this mostly for them, or were the candidates speaking to those party activists and party actors in the, in the audience? I different people do, um, doing different things. I, I would say Obama's speech was more towards the press and not necessarily the bloggers, but more towards the press and people that might, uh, um, you know, party officials or whatnot. I think Hillary's speech, though, was to the rank and file right there, mm-hmm. and it was to send a message, you know, to them that she was ready to fight. Um, so... It, Edwards was probably more to the, um, the the people in the hall. You know, these are the, the people that are members in the DNC are from you know all fifty states, and 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 they go back and they talk quite a bit about you know what their experiences were to fellow Democrats and whatnot. So um, that's who they were trying to make an impression on um, in this speech. Hmm. And well. Um Focus on you specifically as a blogger, since you will be speaking at the panel discussion at KU, the blog to the chief. What is the uh, what is the career trajectory that brought you to MyDD? Like you're known in certain circles by uh, Marcos Melitzas, at least as uh, the blog father. What what was what was the path that led you to become the the Uber blogger that you are today? Well, uh, you know, it's sort of a um, sort of a there there are a number of bloggers who were amongst the first ones that were that began blogging and and it's coincided with me uh graduating from uh from graduate school and and going out i was you know not planning to work in politics but became very involved with the the dean campaign in 2002 and one of the early readers of the blog that i had was joe trippy who was the, became the campaign campaign manager of howard dean and so we started talking early on about um you know how D. Howard Dean could use the the internet and specifically blogs and and for organizing and fundraising, and he he asked me you know if I would like to come and work on the campaign and um, things progressed from there and so I, I've sort of taken this one step at a time after that. And I I read this online and you can confirm for me if this is true or not. Uh, did you actually spend time in a Buddhist monastery? Yes, I wasn't involved in really politics until. 
I, I became obsessed online with following the 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 results in Florida, uh-huh. and um, it was sort of online politics that really dragged me into it, and, and where I became a pol- political junkie. Prior to then, I had uh, done a number of things. I was in the, the Peace Corps for a couple terms, and um, after coming back from them, I did spend a, a lot of time uh, at a at a monastery uh, in in a couple different locations in the in the United States um, studying meditation. Yeah, I guess. Uh Blogging is a form of meditation. It's it's a Zen experience. How do you think that blogging and in the blogosphere and the net roots have fundamentally changed presidential politics? It's so it's we're still so much in the um, right in the middle and the thick of it. Mm-hmm. I would shaking out. You know, I think it the the first changes came across with you know the first radical changes came across with with McCain and him him being able to uh, fundraise millions. Overnight, that radically changed the, the way presidential campaigns are waged. Because usually, if a candidate won, like say Gary Hart in 1984 when he won Iowa, well, they had to wait, you know, a week at least or more for the direct mail contributions to begin trickling in. And and in those days, campaigns would rely upon banks to extend them loans, and they'd leverage their loans in order to um, wage their campaigns once they ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Well, the internet has changed that with its fundraising capability, and so candidates can now raise money online whenever they want to if their supporters are willing to give it. That really broke out with McCain. the The organizing capability that we saw with Dean that happened, with, where he was able to uh, gather, you know, large numbers of people to be able to uh, be on his email list, and that were um, doing things like meet up and organizing all across the nation. That carried forward into the Bush and uh, Bush Cheney campaign, and also the Kerry Edwards campaign, where they were using the the organizing tools to actually um, do decentralized organizing on the internet. Where it hasn't, um, and I think we actually saw some of this develop in the 2006 cycle, is is the actual um, use of the internet for persuading people um, to vote. And I think you could you could point towards the um, towards the example here in Virginia with uh, James Webb. Against George Allen, and we, where we had that the YouTube story that broke online that uh, um, showed George Allen making disparaging comments that were considered racially insensitive, and that I think did did shift a lot of opinion, public opinion, through the use of the internet as a tool. So it's just now beginning to be used as a multimedia device, mm-hmm. and given the number of res- amount of resources that the political campaigns are going to put into it this cycle, I think we're going to see it jump leaps and forwards. It hasn't, you know, if you look at the the amount of money that businesses and corporations are investing into the Internet for marketing and persuasion, the campaigns are nowhere near that amount of expenditure, either in amount or in percentage. So that has to shift first for it to actually work. But I think if either party decides to do that, they're going to gain a, a great competitive advantage by doing that. So hopefully it'll be the Democrats. The other part that's, um, that's changed a lot is w- through the use of the Internet is the underlying technology and being able to be able to proficiently uh, do data mining and targeting of your voters in order to turn them out to vote. And the, the, the Republicans have been ahead of the Democrats on doing that uh, up through the 2004 cycle, but more so in the last cycle, and I think going forward you're going to see the Democrats um, being competitive in this as well. Hmm. 
And talking about the uh, the differences in the Republican and the Democratic approaches to this, aside from the sort of obvious political and ideological differences, what what separates the progressive wing of the Netroots from the conservative wing? And like, why are progressives seeming to make more inroads online than conservatives? Yeah, there's an interesting discussion on that, whether or not it's actually something inherent in, um, you know, what it means to be progressive and how they act differently than conservatives. I think it's too early to tell, because I think one of the things that's that's there is that the, the Internet is an, an, a tool that can be used for insurgency a lot easier than it can be used for someone they already empower, mm-hmm. um, because it does empower, you know, people that don't have power to be able to widen their voice. And the Republicans have been in, in, in power since 2000, um, you know, at the time of when this has become a political medium. But if you look back in the 1990s, it was the conservatives through their conservative websites that were actually using the web much more strongly for organizing and, and pushing stories out into the mainstream media than progressives were. And so it might actually have something to do with, you know, just the simple fact of your party's in power, you're not that aggressive in being an activist using the online tools as you are when they're out of power. Do you see the traditional media as perhaps the enemy, or or does the traditional media see you as the enemy? There seems to be some animosity between the two. I think there's a little bit of animosity, but there's also an understanding of, you know, it's sort of symbiotic, too, sort of feed off each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the bloggers go to the news sites and get their, you know, news from people who, who are being able to dedicate it coverage, um, having having dedicated resources, you know, paying their salaries to do this sort of things, and so they get to do it much more in-depth, and, and the, the traditional news writers get to go to the blogs and read how, you know, sort of people on the street feel, and they get that feedback from people that are at the, at the uh, more of the grassroots level than they do usually through interviewing party officials and whatnot. So, and, and there's, a, you know, a lot more links back and forth now than um, there was even previously. It used to be it was only, it seemed like it was a one-way linking, but now I think um, there's more of a two-way dialogue. I think there's just been a lot of shaking out in terms of, you know, what is the role of a blogger, and um, it, journalists have tended in the past to supplant their own sort of um, sense that writing about politics or whatnot is, is if you're a journalist, you have some sort of objective attitude with you, and bloggers tend to be very partisan in their writing and, and, you know, make no bones about it. And so there's been, you know, a sort of like, look, you know, a question from the sense of journalism of whether or not it's it's credible writing or not that bloggers are doing. But for bloggers, that doesn't really come as a question because what we're really trying to do is help advance our cause and help advance our candidates to win. Hmm. And so you see the blogosphere and and the blogs mostly serving as perhaps party activists, do you see that coexisting with your role as a watchdog of the traditional media, or do you see that one is winning out over the other? Well, it's interesting, and this kind of gets back to your question of, of how, how progressive and conservatives differ, because within the Democratic side, where there's very little of an infrastructure for something like a, you know, a, a vast left-wing conspiracy <laughs> or a propaganda machine like the, the the conservatives have, you don't really have much on that. We don't really have anything really talk radio to speak of. We have a few good shows, Ed Schultz, one of them, and, and Air America has some. Mm-hmm. But by and large, the blogosphere is, is much more predominant in terms of being the, the echo chamber or the place for rapid response to happen within the democratic circle than it is on the conservative side. On the conservative side, where you do have already this infrastructure, both in terms of uh, 
mass media vehicles such as Fox News or the Wall Street Journal and the talk radio shows that reach tens of millions daily, such as Rush Limbaugh. The, the bloggers themselves tend to see themselves much more within the wheel of, of that Republican machine, and they'll, they'll use those different channels, you know, to bring about the same sort of push on different stories that is happening on those other channels that they will do online. Whereas on the Democratic side, we don't really look towards what's happening out there in the, in the mainstream media because we don't really view them as, as our team's side. We're pretty much, uh, you know, on our own. And so we, I think it's one of the reasons why also you see the, the bloggers on the Democratic side or the progressive side much more closely aligned with their politicians in working campaigns and, and, and actually becoming staffers. And that world, the, the lines between the two becoming a little more blurred than you see that happening on the conservative side. Hmm. So far as um, involvement in the uh, 2008 presidential race, do you think that a Democratic candidate can capture the presidential nomination without the support of the net roots? Hillary Clinton right now seems to not be doing that. And you, and you mentioned she, there seems yeah. to be a bit of hostility between the online activists and the Clinton campaign. However, all traditional uh, barometers and metrics seem to indicate that she's the front runner right now. Do you think that she can carry forth without the net roots? Yeah, that's that's. I think well, it, it's it's tough to say that yes or no because um, John Kerry, who did not have a lot of net root support, um, was able to capture the nomination in the last cycle, mm-hmm. and he did that through traditional organizing strength of knowing the nuts and bolts of how to get people to caucus for you in Iowa, and then relying upon a basically a momentum factor that carried him forward into sweeping the nomination. And, and, and defeating Howard Dean, even though he was outspent by Howard Dean. Well, it's really tough to say how you know this thing plays out once the actual caucuses and elections unfold, mm-hmm. because if you have somebody that really does a, a superb job of organizing in a small state like Iowa and, and then Nevada and then wins in New Hampshire, it doesn't involve that much of the net roots to have that exceptional ability of organizing, but that creates such a train of momentum that they could win the nomination regardless. Hmm. So I wouldn't say that it's, you know, totally necessary. However, if you look at the the numbers of the people who are engaged in the blogosphere, they are probably close to 100 times the amount than they were last cycle. And for that reason, I do, you know, Hillary Clinton does do blogger outreach. She's hired an Internet team, and she's very active in, in, in being able to uh, um, make her case for the bloggers. Now, it's not nearly as extensive as, as Howard Dean's was or, the, or John Edwards was, for that matter, but she probably doesn't see it as her base as much as, as, uh, as they do. Mm. And so time will tell to see how much influence... Well, I think here's, how I, how, here's how I really think it will come to effect. If we have a situation where a candidate doesn't uh, steamroll through the, you know, the first three states and then win it all, right. if it's more of a, a style where, you know, one candidate wins one state and another one's another, that that sort of decentralized organizing that the, that the Internet is able to enable and the, and the blogs play a part of is what's going to help that candidate in a multitude of states when it goes into the, the larger convention, larger uh, primaries where they wouldn't necessarily have all that time to build up those sort of huge organizations. As a closing question, uh, you will be in Kansas speaking at this blog to the chief panel on February 13th. What are your thoughts on Kathleen Sebelius, governor of Kansas, and do you think that she has, is she, is she on everyone's short list for vice president right now? Well, 
I'll tell you, um, I know when uh, Governor Warner was thinking, uh, you know, when he was in the in the mix here um, before uh, he dropped out of consideration for the presidency in uh, September last year, mm-hmm. that he was very much mentioned as one of the um, people who, who, you know, he respected a lot. And, and uh, I think she would have definitely been a consideration of, of Warner for vice president. While we're on the topic of Kansas Democrats, what are your thoughts on Nancy Boyd? Is she she's the freshman congresswoman yeah. from the second district. She had a bit of a stumble with the online community in commenting about her support for Bush's surge policy. Where do you see her right now in online standing? Well, she's gonna she's has a tough position because you know she's from a, a traditionally a red state or Republican area, and um, she got elected in a, in a tidal wave, tidal wave Democratic year. And so she's always going to try to figure out, you know, how would how my constituents feel, and they're not always going to be aligned with the, you know, the more partisan, uh, progressive base that's on the it, that's within the net roots. Just that's that's a straddle she has to hurdle. But I do think pe- that people, you know, respect her a lot in terms of uh, her ability to win that election. And uh, you know, Marcos Melitis and I wrote a book, Crashing the Gate, that one of the things we advocated for was a, a Big Ten Democrat philosophy that we, we you know we, we respect it when other democrats disagree because in the wider view um even though they might, they might disagree with us on one or two issues it's more important that we have a democratic majority to push progressive cause as a whole and you know in, in regards to the surge i'm not i don't remember exactly what her position was but um i know the, the, the net roots felt that what that was part of a, a duping to call it a surge instead of an escalation hmm. of you know, which is one of the cases of where the Bush campaign goes out in polls. They know what they want to do, what they go out in polls. What are the right words we can use to sell it? Jerome Armstrong, thank you very much for joining us here. And we look forward to seeing you at the Blog to the Chief panel at KU on February 13th. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you. David Perlmutter, professor of journalism at the University of Kansas and author of the forthcoming book, Blog Wars, The New American Battleground. Thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. Thank you. Uh, You will be moderating a panel at the Dole Institute on February 13th called Blog to the Chief, the Impact of Political Blogs on the 2008 Election. What can we expect to uh, see and hear at Blog to the Chief? Well, this is part of uh, Dole's annual presidential lecture series, and as far as we know, it's the first one that's been focused exclusively on so-called new media in general and specifically on blogs. And we think it's an important uh, discussion to have because, as I think anyone who's paying attention to politics or to developments in media within the last uh, 15 to 20 years can point out and notice that there's been really a a major change in the the way we sort of conceive of the interaction between the politician and the voter, between the media as either a medium, uh, a a mode of transit through for information, but also as a dispenser of information. And we're living really in a uh, perhaps frightening, perhaps uh, disconcerting uh, new world uh, for all of us, those who study politics, those who practice politics, and those who are political consultants, and I think just people who are interested in, in you know, electing uh, good people to office. And why do you think that blogs in particular are, are becoming the sort of 
primary source of information for the politically active, particularly on the uh, progressive and liberal side. The progressive seems to have really cornered the market on blogs, and uh, that seems to be becoming a, a larger information source for them. What, what explains the, the bloggers' rise to prominence, do you think? Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm an academic, so I guess I can't state things as definitively as, as, as you want to or, or, or feel comfortable uh, doing, so I apologize if I'm going to put some caveats and... and uh, but Feel free, and, we need the perspective. Said, um, I'm not a blog absolutist. I don't think like blogs are going to take over the whole world of media and politics and like television will be a sad, pathetic, you know, leftover or something for people over 90 or, or, or young children. Um, I think what, what's happening is that we're really vastly diversifying the, the, the sources that people can get political information, and we're, we're changing the way that, that people can get that information in, in the first place. And, and I, would, I would be hesitant to say that, you know, the liberals or progressives have locked up blogs. There are a number, for example, on this panel of very successful blogs, Powerline, Red State, and many, many thousands of others, you know, at varying levels of, of readership, who are in the conservative or right wing, or however you want to put it, uh, uh, part of the spectrum. Um, and you know, you have to wonder whether it's because part of the reason that there's there's more of a perception that the liberals and left have really taken much more uh, to blogging, which I don't particularly. Again, think it's you know black or white, one hundred percent, zero percent. Is well, they've been out of power for a long time, <laughs> and you know, I, I, one of the other areas I study is the military and the media. And you know, there's an old saying that the the side which lost the last war has the most incentive to try to figure out some new method of winning the next one. You mm -hmm. know, and so maybe over the last ten, fifteen years, there's been more of an incentive in the left and liberals to you know try to figure out some other way to get the message out and to, you know, hear more about what's going on in the political world than traditional media. Um, I would say that both among conservatives and, and liberals, um, there's a sort of unified disagreement about that they, they're unified in saying that they're not satisfied with the old media system. I grew up at a time where, you know, we had three TV channels in my house. Well, it was PBS, and there was UHF for you know, Japanese monster movies. <laughs> and the remote control was the youngest member of the family. Mm -hmm. You know, go change the channel. <laughs> uh, well, now, I mean, it, it's, it's already cliche, but it's sort of interesting that within one middle-aged person's lifetime, it's become cliche that we have, you know, 10,000 uh, throughput options for data to come into our head. And, you know, we can choose whatever songs we like and we can choose whatever movies we want to watch, and, and, you know, we can dissipate or enlighten ourselves through endless channels. And so I think it's become this really gigantic marketplace where we seem to have almost unlimited choices where before we had a very, very narrow range. Now, just as, again, as an academic, uh, I, I, dealing with a lot of students and you know, sort of observing things from just a slight distance, I think there's good and bad in that. I mean, obviously, um, uh, let me, I, there's a quote I use in class sometimes by Mark Andreessen, you know, one of the founders of the, of the Internet and the Web, and he said something to the effect of, like, every time a new user gets on the World Wide Web, uh, we're all enriched. Hmm. And I'm thinking, and, you know, 
I guess that makes sense. On the other hand, I don't feel enriched every time another neo-Nazi website, you know, starts up, or you know, one more pedophile joins the, you know, the teen <laughs> chat room. Right. So, on the one hand, we have all these unlimited choices, and we feel, I guess, more empowered by information. On the other hand, there's a lot of there's more bad choices out there than ever before. More misinformation, more just silliness and stupidity. So I think it's more important for us then to really think about how we're using this new technology and not just say, hey, it's great, you know, okay, well, now, we're here, now I can rule the world. And how do you think that this new media, with all of the options available to us, how crucial do you think it's going to be, or what role is it going to be playing in the 2008 presidential elections? Well, uh, come to the panel and you'll hear uh, much better experts on the subject than myself uh, talk about it, and I think there's a, there's a legitimate range of opinion here, because most, most uh, experienced bloggers, people who have become very successful at political blogging, are not a blog Pollyannist or absolutist. I mean, people like Marcos of Daily Cause and, and some of the bloggers coming tonight, you're not going to hear them say, okay, well, pretty much blogs are going to determine who's the next president. I think most of them hold an opinion around the following, that blogs are a new important tool in the toolkit, uh, you know, the penknife, or however you want to put it, of people who are running for office. Mm -hmm. They're not the only one. They're certainly representative of a lot of other new interactive media technologies, you know, from YouTube, as we saw in the 2006 elections, you know, Facebook, and all these other uh, for want of a better term, interactive uh, uh, media. Uh, but it's not, again, that, you know, the old, are com the old people are completely dead, you know, the old media are dead, and that you won't have to spend any money on television in 2008. You can just, you know, take out blog ads and, and vlog. Mm -hmm. So it's going to figure out how, if you're a political strategist or a candidate, do you mix those up? And I found it fascinating that someone like Hillary Clinton would essentially announce her presidential campaign via what read like and actually you know, looked like a blog post. In other words, um, it may not be that blogs are going to be the way that people um, run for president, but you could see almost assuredly Bill Richardson announcing John Edwards is when John Edwards travels around the country, and he's probably the most blog-embracing political candidate we've had within the last year or two. Whenever he visits a particular town, you know, Lawrence or Fort or Austin or something, to speak at a local college, he will invite a group of, of bloggers mm -hmm. to lunch. Bill Clinton took a group of bloggers, including uh, McJone from Daily Cost, who's coming to speak at the, the blog panel. Uh, so obviously, politicians are paying attention. They're, they're thinking there's important style elements from blogs, fundraising they're very interested in, uh, voter mobilization. So it's just a, a fascinating new world that we're just beginning to you know, figure out what works and what doesn't. Do you detect the presence of this new sort of online campaigning in Kansas at all, or is Kansas sort of behind the curve where the, the rest of national politics are in regards to the new media? Um, I don't know whether necessarily we're behind the curve. There are local political blogs, and I am not an expert on those. I tend to my work is tends to be on national, well, and international level politics. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 
are some pretty prominent uh, bloggers, and one that I think of is actually on the conservative end of uh, John Donovan's blog, and I think he's like the number four conservative mill blog or something. Um, so I, it, it would be hard for me to characterize. Part of it is that Kansas is not a, either a state where, you know, uh, let's put, I hate to put it this way, but the vote isn't crucial. You know, the, the, <laughs> nobody is, gonna, is thinking that the presidential race is going to be decided by the way Kansas swings, right. um, either in a primary or in a, um, a fall election. Uh, campaign, and so maybe not as much attention has been paid to it. Uh, but the interesting thing, of course, about blogs is that, you know, we've always said over the years, Tip O'Neill's famous comment about all politics is local, maybe one of the lessons of 2006 is, you know, you can have all national politics, you know, say Iraq war. And what blogs do, of course, is that you, you can blog out of Lawrence, Kansas, and you're blogging to the whole planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might see something at a uh, Clinton rally you know, or a video or something, you know, as, as happened with George Allen, um, <laughs> at a local rally, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, it's all over YouTube. So it's less clear whether these national, local distinctions matter anymore. Uh, a, a blogger in central Kansas can probably have just as much influence as a blogger in New York City. And uh, while we're talking about presidential politics in Kansas, we'll just broaden it out a little bit. Um, where do you see Sam Brownback and Kathleen Sebelius in the mix for 2008? Or do you see them in the mix for 2008? Uh, well, Dole had a, a sort of presidential prospect uh, panel lessons learned from 2006 uh, a couple of months ago, and some very uh, sage pollsters and political consultants, political journalists were talking about this. And you know, it's hard not to put money on the front runner. There's a reason why people are, are horses and and politicians are front runners. You look at somebody's hundred million or two hundred million dollar bank account, and you gotta say, well, I have to respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess it's the romantic in in me, and in a lot, I think a lot of Americans like the idea of the the Mr. Smith, you know, who just comes out of nowhere and uh, takes out the big important front runners who are favored by Washington and New York and, and, and big media. And I think actually some political observers know that, that, that being too much of a favorite early on in a presidential race is, not, is a gift in that you know, you're able to raise a lot more funds and there's a sense of inevitability. On the other hand, you, you, know, you get all the shots. Yeah. I think people who tend to come from other areas get, get more of a pass and they get less scrutiny at first. Also, they're, they're, as I said, there's this romantic element. Uh, I think mostly in terms of vice presidency, you know, and I think that uh, people like uh, Sam Brownback, you know, he obviously attracts a certain constituents of the Republican Party. He's uh, more of a somebody who could attract a large group of voters, actually, who, who if they didn't have anybody else to vote for, that they might say, okay, well, he's going to be our candidate. Sibelius is more interesting because uh, she's, you know, if I had to write a script of who would be, who, who, who I would pick if I were the, the Democratic uh, nominee for president to pick somebody to tell everybody that, you know, I'm, I'm not, say, let's just take Hillary Clinton, that I'm not the senator from New York 
going to be the president from New York, or I'm not an East Coaster and I'm going to just run an East Coast administration and ignore the middle of the country. Kathleen Sebelius has the the perfect look and the perfect uh, resume for that, and you have to respect uh, the job that she's done as governor in sort of building that uh, image of um, somebody who would establish a moderate credential, you know, or, or a heartland credential for a Democratic presidential candidate. And finally, give us uh, give us the pitch for your upcoming book, Blog Wars: The New American Political Battleground. Star Wars meets Jaws meets, <laughs> it's meets the, Showgirls. It's the Graduate Part Two. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I think that people are the number of people are writing good books about blogs. This is a book that tries to incorporate a lot of what we we found through research about what works and what doesn't and how blogs uh, affect people. And also because I'm a media historian, I sort of take a, a long-term view and make an argument that a lot of the elements of blogs have always been around. It's just that very recently we've had the technology to really super-enable them for people to put them to their maximum um, use. David Perlmutter, professor of journalism at the University of Kansas and author of the aforementioned Blog Wars, the New American Political Battleground, who will be moderating a panel at the Dole Institute on February 13th called Blog to the Chief. Thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. Thank you. I'd like to once again thank our guests, Joan McCarter, Jerome Armstrong, and David Perlmutter, all of whom will be participating in the Blog to the Chief panel to be held at the Dole Institute of Politics on February 13th. Send comments to poundingthepundit at yahoo.com, leave comments at lawrence.com, and be our virtual buddies at myspace.com backslash punditocracy. Thanks for joining us here at Punditocracy, and remember... The only things that can end a politician's career are a dead hooker or a live blog. Bye-bye.